Hello, everyone. Welcome to Risk Hello. Roundup. Many countries' economies have been facing turmoil since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. From on and off lockdowns and resulting supply chain disruptions, the reality of the volatile situation has led us to the brink of a looming economic crisis. Now, it has been aggravated further by the Russia-Ukraine war and the growing geopolitical risk due to emerging technologies. As a result, many countries are on their way to facing an economic crisis that will likely result in profound political and social instability as already happening in Sri Lanka. The emerging economic crisis and the imminent collapse of many countries have global implications, not only because of destabilization of the countries and potential mass migration, but also because the future of humanity will be at risk. A world-renowned expert in economics, Dr. Aman Agarwal, who is a professor of finance, senior vice chairman, dean at Indian Institute of Finance and executive editor, Finance India, has graciously accepted risk group invitation to share his insights on the looming economic crisis. Welcome, Professor Agarwal. The risk group community and I look forward to your views on the emerging economic crisis. Thank you, Jayashree, for inviting me to talk on this issue. It's a pleasure and honor always to be at your forum, and uh, which has a very wide reach and uh, impact on policy making, not only within the United States, but uh, globally. Oh, my pleasure. And it's our honor, uh, uh, Professor Agarwal, that you have uh, graciously accepted our invitation. So let's begin by discussing Sri Lanka. We are all witnessing the real-time crisis emerging in the country there is no other way to put it but saying that Sri Lanka is collapsing. What do you think went wrong? You know, Sri Lanka is an interesting case, although we have had uh, debacles of various countries in the past, which included some Latin American countries, even in Turkey or Chile, in Argentina, in the 70s and the 80s. We have had these debacles of some of these countries where they have converged to bankruptcy at a particular stage. But then uh, Sri Lanka is an interesting new case which has come up, uh, which has had a very high per capita income, like some of these countries as well, uh, but was typically dependent on uh, two prime commodities for their revenue. One was uh, exports of agriculture goods, and the second was uh, hospitality, that is primarily tourism in the, within the hospitality business, which was uh, yielding to their uh, growth impetus and the growth which they were observing tremendously. Certainly, as a country, they were doing all kinds of activities, like every country does, but these were the two prime uh, activities which were yielding them the maximum amount of contribution to the GDP, per se. Uh, with the new government, which came into place about uh, four years back, uh, there were uh, problems in Sri Lanka before that itself. Their foreign exchange reserves had dipped uh, to roughly about you know seven billion dollars about three three and a half years back, uh, plus on top of it the new government came with a big bonanza for the people at large where they promised a large amount of waivers, subsidies, relaxations in taxation, and so on and so forth, and which they did implement. You know like a political party which is always evaluated uh, later on by the public as to what they brought in their manifesto are they implementing or not. This particular government, which came into power about four years back, actually did implement what they promised to the people at large of giving freebies, of giving uh, free subsidies, giving relaxed rates on electricity, on petroleum, on various commodities. 
and uh, even reduction in taxation, large, huge reductions in taxation. So, uh, you know, as an economy, which typically is dependent on two commodities primarily, and then uh, is giving some of these relaxations, could not bear the hit of uh, the COVID-19, which came into place, because both organic agriculture, which they moved to from re not regular agriculture, uh, because of the pressure of the funds given by China, plus the fact that they were uh, there were no tourism activities happening uh, in the last two, two and a half years, uh, led to their uh, major expansion of the crisis, which they were already in. So it was not something which created the crisis or their economic scenario to happen, but something which aggravated it and acted as a catalyst in terms of making it faster. Uh, the current government, the kind of civil unrest which is there, is naturally bound to be there. Uh, the government was well aware of what was expected to happen with the kind of scenario they were existing in. Despite the kind of relief uh, India and some of the other countries are given, India has given roughly about 2.5 billion to about 3 billion, uh, almost 3.5 billion dollars with credit lines and so on and so forth of relief uh, earlier about 1 billion dollar and then additional to 2.5 billion dollars going forward in the last couple of months. Uh, despite those reliefs which were given by India, then by some of the other countries, including the new package which has been proposed from the IMF, uh, that is a small amount only to keep them on uh, on living framework. You know, uh, Sri Lanka, as a matter of fact, as an economy, because of high per capita income and all, requires uh, anywhere about 100 billion to about 200 billion dollars uh, to be pumped in immediately if they want to stabilize, uh, you know, the activities in the country and then move forward. Whereas uh, what they are looking at and what they are even asking IMF is a small token of five, six, uh, or ten billion dollars, which will only, you know, keep them afloat for about a week, ten days, uh, nothing more than that. And that is something which is critical uh, for Sri Lanka as of today. So, you know, uh, as a nation, I don't think it's going to go up. It has its own potentials. We have seen, as I said, in the 70s and the 80s, even recently, we have seen in some countries like Greece, where the situation was even worse. But these countries have come out of these scenarios. I remember a colleague of mine who was a French historian told me the kind of French debacle they were after French Revolution, specifically with the war with the United States uh, way back in the 1700s, where they had risen their debt uh, to about $19 billion or so, which was to the tune of almost about, uh, you know, if they had to clear that debt, it would take, the, according to them, roughly about 100 years to clear. But France was able to do it much faster. So we've had the various countries in the past which have gone into such kind of debt traps, uh, problems, uh, crisis scenarios, and they have come out. So I have no doubt that with the, the kind of global village we live in, where there is a commodative stance, where countries are ready to help, you know, because Sri Lanka is not a country which is a terroristic country or a country which enjoys a negative, uh, you know, uh, opposition around the globe either from the neighbors or even around. There is no negativity in terms of the kind of activities they do. Uh, so that's where uh, you know, they would get the kind of relief and support from neighbors and even across the globe and international agencies like the World Bank, IMF, OECD, and others. And I think with that kind of a support and structure which we exist in today, and we've seen that happen in COVID-19 period where countries went out of their way uh, not only when India helped the United States and other countries, but including India when oxygen was in deprivation, where countries uh, from Europe, from Asia, from all over the world uh, came forward and donated large amount of oxygen concentrators, oxygen plants, and so on and so forth to take care of the requirements. So that kind of a 
structure we have seen happen and that's something new which is going together moving together something which is very important so i feel it will come out but the period uh, for the next 5 years would be a very uh, hardship kind of a period for sri lankans in particular because if they continue to be at such high per capita income structures they would not be able to do also sri lanka suffers from a parallel economy structure similar to what india and various emerging economies follow and also cash economic structures like the united states also has a huge cash economy india has a huge cash economy uh, so sri lanka also suffers from these two problems which is cash economy and black economy or or you know parallel economy as we refer to and that will keep it afloat for some more time but then if some of these people who hold these large chunks of fund fly off as have been seen in the last one and a half month uh, we will see troubles for sri lankans per se and as i said they would have to bear the heat uh, to go forward that there is no option not to bear the heat but it will come out i am very certain about it they have the potential and they would certainly come out it's a question of economic policy and what structures they lay forward uh, coming forth in the next one one and a half two months uh, provided the current government relieves itself which they promised but have again moved off uh, in the last uh, one day or so yes yes let let's hope that uh, sri lanka is able to come out of this uh, complex situation that they are facing the president has fled the country i believe right uh, we heard on the that is what the news is uh, yes, that's is what the news is not clear whether he has or not uh, right. because today's news says his wife has fled but it is not clear where he is so uh, it could be possible and we have seen not you know it's not something very uh, uh, unique to sri lanka we've seen that happen with indonesia we've seen that happen with thailand we've seen that happen afghanistan uh, you know with afghanistan various other countries yes. uh, around the globe where people have actually you know taken off their land and with large chunks of funds i remember uh, mm-hmm. with thailand who was a businessman who became a prime minister later on his daughter also became prime minister she he flew with almost about 10 11 planes to finland and landed up in finland uh, you know he was not carrying certainly clothes in those 10 or 11 planes so he took a large chunk of money and thailand went into a very big trouble thailand is a unique example why i am quoting here is because the central bank of thailand actually then took control of the economic structures and since then it is a central bank which is actually majorly running the country then the political party or the king per se though they do come in the political excellence are there policy making does take place through political structures but the main money money supply structures the money movements and everything uh even including large chunk of fiscal spending structures are in thailand being controlled through the central bank and that is only one central bank in the whole world which has actually structured a whole country and made the country come out of the the debt or the structure the problem they were in almost about 10 15 years back and something which is very unique in the world and that's why i wanted to come out with thailand in particular so we have structures around the world where different countries have adopted different models where turkey took the help of imf and used that infrastructure pakistan is trying to take the help of imf recently in their own structures and uh, thailand had its central bank take control of the whole affair uh, because they still have the monarch with the king but there are political parties who rule and uh, they had no option but for the central bank to take control and they have been fairly successful in taking it forward and making thailand a stable and a growing economy very true very true now uh, there are complex challenges from so many different directions it's just not the governments and politic uh, the government's policies or the central bank's policies but the currencies are collapsing inflation is you know 
rising. We will talk about that, you know, a little bit later in the discussion. But there are so many challenges emerging, food crisis and all that, that countries, it seems that they're reverting to the controls of the past. And it seems citizens are not convinced about the future that is shown to them by their national governments or even by their central banks. So does it surprise you how fast the societal collapse is emerging with the economic collapse as we witness in Sri Lanka and some other countries? You know, I'm happy that you asked this because, you know, it is not only the question of the government wanting to control or what the government wants today. Uh, the social structure of the social media has to a great extent taken over of what people feel and how do they act and how do they react. In fact, as you know, both in the United States and Europe and including some of the developing emerging markets and countries, and this has been an issue raised in India also uh, recently, we have seen that some of these companies based in social media are influencing the decision-making of uh, voters in terms of trying to get who is to come into power. And that is the kind of power it has seen. We've also seen uh, in the last uh, six, seven years, turmoils like in Tunisia, which happened, we have seen in some of the other countries where the powers were turned down uh, because of the way social media reacted, even in Afghanistan to a great extent, we saw the kind of response and the news which is traveling through social media, letting know what is happening, what is not happening. So, you know, today, uh, a person like you and me, or even a person on the ground on the street, uh, or a street hawker is uh, well aware of uh, what is happening, what is not happening, rightly or wrongly. And as a result, when it, this kind of information is flowing throughout where the judgmental value is little and one doesn't know as to what is right and what is wrong. You know, I remember when I was a small child, I was told uh, to listen to news, to not only improve my English, but to get to know what is happening around the world. Uh, when I was just, uh, you know, in the mid-school level, then later on, I was told that you must listen to BBC World because that is something which is more accurate. Uh, when we had our own prime minister, Mrs. Indira Gandhi assassinated, the first news came out through BBC and then our own media channels here. So, you know, it, the, 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 the authenticity of a news became a very critical component and people started realizing that. But today with social media taking that power up and everybody coming on social media, you know, anyone can just come up and start doing activities. It is really not clear. And that news uh, at times, whether it is a fake news or a real news, spreads much faster than any news which is released through government frameworks and portals. And that is something which is a key concern, and especially because the youth is tagged onto it. It is not the elderly generation, which also gets influenced. Every one of us gets influenced by the information which we get. And this is what Joseph Stiglitz got the Nobel Prize for, which was information asymmetry, which he looked at from the capital markets, a stock markets perspective or economic perspective. But you know, it is in every behavior of us, what news comes to us, what flashes before us does have an impounding impact on our mind. And that's what psychologists have been studying and have studied more in the last two years because of COVID, how things are influencing, what is happening. And I think that is where we see these debacles actually aggravating uh, then being controlled. And that is why, whether you're a democratic country or an autocratic country, you know, like China or a democratic country like US or India or various other European nations, it is becoming difficult for any national government to go about actually controlling what will happen tomorrow. And that is something which is completely out of control 
And that is why we see some unrest. We saw some unrest even in Britain recently because of some social media structure which have come out and the news which started floating through in social media. And that is something uh, which is a very big challenge. Uh, how to go about regulating it or structuring it is still a big question. And should it be regulated or structured is also a big question. You know, the government of India in particular has been trying to create structures in the last three to four years in terms of trying to get, uh, you know, the fake news out of business. But uh, it is very difficult. You know, even recently we saw, uh, you know, Ian Musk, who was actually taking over Twitter, coming up with the fact that he does, he wants to back out of the deal, which is getting him into trouble because there are going to be now legal cases with the way he had moved into Twitter, with the fact that there are fake accounts, uh, structures which are not, and even Twitter is not aware of this. Now, you know, whom to believe and whom not to believe. Should we believe a person who is investing into a company, large company, who is a big investor, who is a big name, who makes noise? Or should we believe a company who has been running this business for such a long time to believe that, yes, their accounts are genuine and not fake? And Twitter had become a major component, although I personally do not use Twitter so much, but I know how it has been being utilized by most media houses in terms of spread political uh, parties by uh, think tanks to actually spread or take their voice forward. And that is where you know, it becomes important to understand this complexity, which most of us, uh, even in the educated community or people who are well-researched off, at times tend to you know, dilute off when it comes to uh, random news coming because we do not have that time to take a call whether this news will be right or wrong and to go to investigate whether the news is right or wrong. And I think in that is one of the key criticism problems, which is actually aggravating any kind of a crisis, even a currency fall as a matter of fact, from that perspective, even inflation as a matter of fact. You see, when there is news which comes up and spreads faster than four people giving more for further for news, then when people hear it, then they start hoarding goods, then they hold, start hoarding supplies, then they start hoarding currency. And as a result, you see some of these trends which could have taken maybe days happening in few hours and few minutes now. And that is something which has got aggravated in my opinion, become a key concern and cause of these problems, which we are seeing both in the monetary framework, in crisis framework, or even political turmoils, which is happening around the world. Yes, as uh, also the societal framework. You're absolutely right about that. It, these are enormous complex challenges. The a number of information sources that are increasing and the misinformation and disinformation that goes with it brings a lot of security challenges. And uh, especially, you know, when we are talking about the economic growth of a country or, you know, so, societal growth, all of these uh, technological growth, all of these variables come into play. So as we evaluate the global economic growth uh, for this year, 2022 or 2023, it seems that we are not out of the woods. The challenges are actually increasing. The forecast for the global economic growth in 2023 and 2024, it's probably, you know, more gloomy than what we are witnessing right now in 2022. So growth, you know, people, uh, there are uh, predictions and projections that growth is expected to be at the same level, like in 2022, if we look for, you know, 2023, but uh, to add to the problems, the inflation, it remains abnormally high in so many different countries. Even some of the stronger economies like, you know, United States and, you know, Britain and uh, European countries, they are also feeling the heat. So if you look at the U.S. inflation, uh, today the numbers came out that it's 9.1 percent. 
uh, and Britain's annual inflation rate is 9.1 as well. And uh, it's highest in 40 years. And Germany also, uh, it has reached, you know, very high level of inflation. And so many emerging economies are struggling with the growing inflation. Where do you see this going? You see, I'm happy again you asked this question because it's a very complex thing which is happening and which is leading to people getting into confusions. As far as the growth projections are concerned, if I remember correctly, they were projecting a global growth of about 3.6% or so for the current year. Uh, I feel they would be, that's what the IMF data came out last year, if I remember correctly. Uh, I think there will be a dent of almost 1% in that global growth, which is expected uh, across the board. And this is not uh, you know, only developing or emerging or you know, least developed countries, but uh, all countries will feel the heat of this growth fall. Uh, which is there. Uh, as far as, uh, you know, the, the kind of inflation which we are observing, there are multiple reasons, in my opinion, which have caused inflation in different economies in a different way. Uh, you know, when we look at uh, Europe and United States in particular, the inflation levels are tremendously very high. It's not, you know, it's not just high, it is, uh, it is something uh, beyond the expectation or reach which could ever have happened. You know, maybe in the last 30, 40 years, maybe it might have happened once in the history. But otherwise, never such kind of breaches have happened. And they have gone to almost six, seven, eight times of what usual inflation of these economies have been or what people are used to in terms of inflation. And that is something which is a cause of concern and worry. But this is not unexpected. You know, what happened is because of uh, the COVID crisis which took place, some of these economies actually went about doing a huge amount of fiscal spending. Like in United States, they did fiscal spending to the tune of almost three times of their GDP, uh, you know, which is not small amount. And uh, from one of the company's examples, I know someone who is an American company based in India, and he runs his business both in India and United States. He was telling me his company has been given uh, a huge chunk of money. In fact, twice it was given to him by mistake, and one he refunded uh, almost about $20 billion or more was million dollars or more was given to him in his bank account directly transferred by the government as a loan for the next 20 years. So the repayment cycle for this loan was going to start after 20 years, not even a year, two years, three years down the line. So you can imagine you're getting uh, you know, an interest-free loan uh, from the government directly into your account without you even applying for it uh, for keeping the employee base stable, for not letting people off the hook. This is a kind of fiscal spending which is very unique, which has happened in the United States. So in any case, as I said, he refunded one of them, but he continued with one of them, and he held on to that money, which allowed him to actually float up, float in the United States and even his operations in India. So he was happy with that fund. But then you see, please understand from an economics point of view, you know, when you're giving this kind of money to a country, so they keep continuing to spend the same amount, whereas their production levels are completely gone down. They're not actually getting this money out of, you know, creating value. You know, when you an employee works, when a, when a person manufactures or does something, then he goes about selling those skills or selling those products in the market and generating revenue from there on. And that revenue actually comes in the balance sheets in terms of profits and losses. And that's which is actually about spending. And so we have a normal growth trend there or a fall or a, or, a, you know, or a loss which happens. But in case you get this chunk of big chunk of money like a, a lottery and then you are utilizing it for the next 10, 15, 20 years, trying to boost off your profits, trying to boost off your balance sheet. So it keeps you afloat, but then it, it is like, a, you know, a kind of a 
boost which actually cripples you down completely because you are you're not uh, motivated to work enough for the profit generation which is to be the main cause of uh, growth factor and not such kind of funds and this is what happened not only in united states but in large part of europe and large number of developed countries because they had the requisite surpluses and the economy was there they wanted to keep the unemployment level under control they wanted the civil unrest to be under control because people had not seen these kind of turmoils you know countries like india or you know vietnam or cambodia from time to time every 3 4 years we see some kind of an economic fall upon we see that the economies have gone down there is recession or there is crisis or some state or something is happening so we are used to some kind of civil unrest every now and then in our countries but in countries which are like united states or germany or uk or new zealand or australia or japan you don't see such kind of turmoils happen every second year so naturally there was a natural fear within the government that if uh, this situation of covid is not controlled and you know because of certain rules on privacy on what can be used and what cannot be used the government could not make it mandatory for vaccination to be implemented there are laws which protected a citizen to go forward for a certain vaccination or not to go forward as a choice whereas in some countries like india it was imposed you know like i remember we got uh, many of our staff did not get vaccination initially but then we got ultimatum from the district magistrate's office in in greater noida telling that submit the certificates of all staff members otherwise we are sending a team to do the vaccination so you you have no literally no choice whether you want to have it or not have it and not only in india but various other developing countries have similar scenarios despite being democratic in nature those laws become restrictive where the governments impose certain things and you have no option but to do it in case of countries like united states uk australia japan various of some of these countries it was not possible to do those kind of things and as a result they had to take care of unrest and so they did this overspending which they did out of fiscal uh, stimulus which they gave and that actually led to the creation of inflation because you're getting money without working please understand people even got money in their accounts you know they raised the minimum level of sustenance which was there for unemployment you know the kind of unemployment benefit as a social security measure which united states has which using the social security number uk has it even australia and new zealand has it japan has it various countries have it countries like india don't have it we do have unemployment registrations but we don't have unemployment benefits coming to us but so in their these cases they these amounts were raised and people got them so they said okay fine i'm getting my sustenance level so maybe i would maybe uh, you know spend about 10 dollars or 15 dollars or 50 dollars a day maybe i don't want to spend 50 dollars i'm getting a money which i can spend 10 dollars but i'm doing no work and i'm getting 10 dollars to spend so he said yes i am happy to spend when the government is ready to give me and this is where the productivity fell down the growth fell down and the employment levels fell down on the other hand the expenditure kept at the same level so the consumption or the customer confidence or the consumption confidence which most economies like united states look at in terms of their numbers of growth and structures kept at the same level so they were able to keep that same level that actually led to creation of inflation because then the goods were less supplies were there less supply chain disruption started happening because when you had no people to go and work on ports no people to go and work on train stations on railways on airways so what will happen there will be disruptions and when supply chain disruption started happening their growth started falling down even further on the other hand their consumption levels remained the same because the government was providing for them whether it was companies or individuals and this happened as i said 
both in large number of developed countries like United States, UK and all. So this fiscal spending, which was created this kind of a movement, created the inflation boost to keep going up. And this is where the Fed had a problem. And that's why they had to have Powell back, who was a strong person in terms of monetary control structures to go forward in the Fed so that you know they could be controls. Uh, and But it is already too late to go about controlling because the damage which was supposed to be done, you see any monetary policy measure of such nature or fiscal policy measure of such nature has an impact rollover in about six months to a year. It doesn't happen immediately. And this is where what happened in COVID year in 2020-21 is having an impact in 2022 and onwards. We are seeing that repercussions or ripple effects going forward here. So it's like you know a hurricane or a, or a something happening in the sea it doesn't get to the, the shore immediately. It takes time to go forward. And this is where this time lag happened and we saw this happening. In countries like India, where we're also seeing rise in inflation, but not to that rate level. You know, we are around roughly about 7, 7.2% of inflation, that is CPI inflation as we're looking at today. But this 7.2% is uh, for factors different from what happened in the United States or Europe. Because here, they kept a huge strong control on fiscal spending, despite the opposition, despite social activists during COVID and the late 2021, asking for excessive spending by the government, the government did not resort to those measures. Also, what they did was they reallocated their budgets. How did they reallocate? So suppose they had allocated budgets to making, making railways or making spending on certain activities in agriculture and other things, which are not going out. So they took those funds from those allocated budgets to be utilized for COVID and others. So they were already that was planned expenditure, which they rerouted, which is not a right policy decision making in terms of long term growth, but certainly at that time to reduce fiscal uh, you know, burden, that was a good step to do. So they did it. And as a result, there in India, we saw a fiscal spending in the first year of nine and a half percent as against a usual spending of five or six or seven percent. So it was not too much of a difference in terms of fiscal spending, which we saw. And the second year, we were dot on what we were looking at. We were looking at five, five and a half, six percent And that is what we were on in the second year. So we did keep our fiscal spending under control. But what happened was that the oil prices could not be kept under control. Initially, when the oil prices were low, uh, you know they did uh, keep the taxes high so that the prices don't, are not to be reduced in the domestic market. So people kept spending and the consumption was less because there were lockdowns, restrictions in travels and so on and so forth. And people were working from home. Large number of companies did not want to open up because of fear of COVID. And so they wanted their employees to work from home. So they, the transportation was very little. The usage of fuel, as a matter of fact, was very little. So they kept the prices fairly high. It was primarily the government machinery, which was working almost at almost 60, 70%, but the rest of them were working at 15, 20%. So the consumption levels are way less. And so fuel prices did not impact so much in terms of inflation contribution initially. But then they kept them high, they kept them stable, even though the international price was around 19 uh, and a half dollar per barrel, which really landed up in uh, you know early 2020s, immediately after March or April, if I remember correctly. So you know this is where they kept the prices stable. But then when the prices started rising in the international market, they also started rising it because the previous government, the Congress government in it during its power made the oil prices in India market driven, not realizing that oil prices are not market driven. Large part of oil, almost about 98% of our oil consumptions, which are projected are bought in contracted prices. Uh, which are ranging between $55 a barrel to $65 a barrel. Earlier when Saddam Hussein used to be there in the 90s, these contracts were 20, 25, 30 years. Nowadays, these contracts are ranging between three to five years. 
and uh, you know so still for 3 to 5 years you have those prices locked on unless the variation goes beyond a certain range so your prices remain locked on and those agreements are only looked upon if the prices go beyond a certain range so they had that leeway to go forward so they were not buying the the whole 100% of oil from the open market secondly what is important to be understood is and this happens in all econ economies when you go about buying an oil suppose i buy an oil today at 100 110 a barrel this lands up in my country after a month month and a half then it goes to refining then it lands up in the petrol stations after almost two and a half to three months after processing is done so the oil which i bought at 100 110 lands up in the open market for consumption only after two and a half three months so why increase the price today which governments like india and others have been started doing so so they were encashing this actually coined up and raised the inflation level so it's a oil push inflation which we are seeing in india as against a fiscal inflation which we are seeing in united states or europe and that is where it is very much india as against uh, you know uh, what is there in structures of united states and this is where inflation levels are fairly higher in india as of today but not very high because if you look at 2010 when the planning commission at that time now niti aayog actually did a report because of the congress government and we found out in that report that almost for a period of about 6 7 years from 2003 4 onwards till almost 2010 or so the inflation has ranged between 9 and 1/2 10 11% so you know india has been you know a capable of you know absorbing uh, you know that is people had the capacity to absorb you know it's like when you go for a buffet how much can you eat so there was a consumption appetite of inflation which could be absorbed to the tune of about 11 10 12% we have also seen inflation levels in the last 20 25 years going to about 13 14% in this country you know so when this kind of uh, absorption capacity is there 7% is fairly comfortable the only difference is when we look at those levels they were wpi levels because earlier before raguram rajan became the governor of the central bank the reserve bank of india the we used to look at wholesale price index consumer price index was only for two or three commodities rest of it was all wholesale price index so when we're looking at 10 11% 12% that was wholesale price index and not consumer price index what we are looking at today as 7% is nothing else but consumer price index and there is always a gap of about 2 to 1.5% in the consumer price index and the wholesale price index traditionally lately there has been too much of waver we have seen wholesale price index even go down in during covid time and we have seen wholesale price index cross even 15% recently uh, in specifically when it comes to food inflation which happened recently so even retail inflation went up like you talked about 9.1% as retail inflation in united states so we've seen those changes happen but you know still this level is very much under control and very much under absorption capacity there are countries around the world like turkey in sri lanka which have actually gone up to 40% 45% even 100% of inflation not so only these are that, yes not only that but those countries are having double blows because they have stagnant or almost no very slow growth and high inflation so this what do you think uh, this stagflation is going to how what kind of impact do you see yeah. having on those countries i'm going to just come to that you see so there has been these fears of stagflation and recession so i have been interviewed recently in couple of television on the word recession or if recession has come in or has because nbr also came out recently uh, talking about the united states is moving into the recession cycle now or even the uh, you know the fact that are we moving into stagflation 
you see in my understanding of economics and what i have read throughout first of all you know we need to have the two quarters going down that was a traditional definition of you know going out recession secondly large number of parameters need to go down simultaneously which is not happening in any country as of today so we have not seen two quarters go down simultaneously for any country so far plus we have not seen those simultaneous uh, factors which is like unemployment uh, you know inflation uh, you know inflation rising too high or unemployment rising too high then production levels going down completely then we look at the money supply uh, going out of control and the currency uh, you know appreciating or depreciating to a great extent very high and very fast we have seen some of these factors like united states we have seen the dollar rising very fast we have seen the unemployment levels go up the inflation go up but the the gdp still is consistent as of now it has not fallen down it has not gone up too much it has not fallen down as well similar is the case with the united kingdom so we have seen some of these factors but not all of them go up and go down when you look at india country like india we are only seeing inflation factor which is actually going adversely but when you look at gdp numbers they are going up the employment numbers are going up the policy framework is going up so when you look at money supply is fairly under control the rupee has depreciated in the last couple of days uh, with the strengthening of euro and the dollar but otherwise uh, you know it has been fairly stable in terms of structure so we are not seeing any country first of all in recession per se another two or three months down the line we may see some of them come up but not as of today when it comes to stagflation also you know stagflation is also a combination of three factors it is not only one factor which is looked upon we look at the the gdp numbers as i said gdp numbers even in developed countries like united states uk are fairly stable they have not gone down to that great level which is a major concern secondly and that is primarily because of the artificial influx of the fiscal spending which is there which is keeping the gdp numbers afloat uh, secondly the per capita income needs to start falling as well which is not happening the inflation needs to go tremendously high so we can look at that inflation factor in united states and uk specifically going up to that level but then other factors are not collaborating in india in any case inflation has not gone up to that level as i told you the appetite is much higher in terms of inflation capturing in united states where the inflation capturing appetite is 1 1.5 maximum about 3% where you caught cross almost 8.5 today 9.1% so you know it's crossed to a great level and that's where the cause of concern is then the the currency which needs to in case like in the united states it appreciated too much you know everyone appreciates a currency appreciating and especially united states which it has been wanting since the the well financial meltdown in 2007 8 the dollar has had been a strain of uh, devaluation so they do want an appreciation to take place but not at these times when appreciation takes place when all factors are positive that means employment is high and uh, things are going up and you know situations are rosy at that time when a currency appreciates then it is a positive currency appreciation but when it happens like in a situation now which is happening both in euro and dollar it is a threatening situation because most of these economies import large chunk of their commodities and you know and they are dependent on sale of high end products luxury products or defense products uh, which they sell get their revenue from so selling those products to an economy which is already in a downturn will become very difficult for them and to get that revenue to buy further the consumer goods will become difficult for them and so it will disrupt the whole cycle so a stronger currency at such a stance is bad so in, in stagflation also an important component is unemployment levels so the unemployment levels as i said in united states and uk have been kept stagnant as of now and why they have been kept stagnant because of the fiscal spending they have done in india fortunately it has been the government data shows 
that the employment levels have actually been rising. And recently, the prime minister also came out because I've been speaking for almost last, uh, almost a year now, that almost 60 to 70% of allocations in various government departments and ministries have not been filled in the last three, four years because this government wanted less government, more governance as a model. So introduced digital framework structures and didn't want too many people in their offices. So they reduced their levels, but now they have that capacity. So they are now the prime minister has come out and said, we are going to fill in X number of vacancies in various governments across the world. Or that's about 10 lakh vacancies they're filling up. Roughly about uh, you know a million vacancies they're filling up uh, in various departments across the country. So that is going to also boost up employment levels. Already, when we look at the government data, it is showing that boost up. When we look at the, the EPFO data, which is the Employee Provident Fund data, that is also showing a positive trend. Some of the reports like the independent agency like CMIE shows that there is unemployment rise in certain states and specifically large, big cities, but employment levels in smaller towns and smaller cities have gone up. So there is both a mixed trend which private reports like CMIE are giving out. But then this is an important component which is also very important when stagflation is looked upon. So this particular component is also not looked upon. So this fear of stagflation is not something which I'm seeing happening in the next five, six months, maybe 2023, we may see some countries suffer from stagflation, but not as of today, uh, given the way things are moving up. So that is also not a cause of concern, but certainly the cause of concerns are the steep rise of currencies. And I'm happy that government of India, not sorry, government of India, but Reserve Bank of India has taken a decision yesterday to actually introduce a rupee-based trade, uh, yeah. which is a very important component, which we have been voicing for almost 15 years now. But I'm happy that the RBI has looked at this particular framework of introducing it, because this will help stabilize and reduce the volatility in the rupee. Instead of moving from a floating system to a fixed system, which some countries have done in the past, when they had their uh, currency falling too fast, they are, even Asian, Asian, East Asian Tigers did that framework when in 1997, the Asian financial crisis happened. So instead of moving that change from floating and keeping it as managed float as United States does or UK does or Europe does, various countries do, we are still sticking onto that floating structure, but moving onto a framework which allows rupee to boost up. Fortunately for rupee, there are these positive factors. Rupee has been a, a floating currency since 1978 onwards, unlike a yen or any other currency. So it's been a long time it has been floating. Secondly, we have been a reserve currency for more than 28 countries in the, in the world uh, recently because they have been trade partners, they have been keeping rupee as a reserve. Thirdly, we had seen the rupee floating in the Arabic region with a different color because at that time the RBI did not know. From almost 1948 or 49 or 51, I'm not remembering the exact year, but if I remember it was around 50-51 when the Indian printed a different, same rupee, but a different color and gave it to people working in Europe, in UAE and Saudi Arabia, because a large number of Indian laborers, uh, middle executives went there to work to build the Arabic region, even in Singapore as a matter. So they gave this currency. And so these people could bring this currency, come to a counter of RBI and change it into a regular Indian currency of the same value. So 100 rupees will remain 100 rupees, 200 rupees, 500 rupees will remain 500 rupees, 1000 rupees will remain 1000 rupees. So no depreciation and you get a currency in a different color. So we do have that experience of having a currency, unlike a dollar, which is floating freely across the globe. We have that experience of a currency also floating outside. Thirdly, which has happened in India's case is that the, you know, the Indian had introduced about 
three years back, rupiah like the Mastercard and Visa. Mm-hmm. So the rupiah framework has also been floating for almost three years in a digital platform where people could use these cards, and this has been accepted by Arabic countries. Asian countries, I do not know how many of European or American uh, countries are accepting it, but at least in Asia and the, the Arabic region, which is again a large continent in terms of usage and where a huge chunk of Indian population is living, the rupiah-based payment gateway framework has been working for almost two to three years. Now, that also gives a boost to the fact that the rupee is acceptable. And so I have been seeing in the last five years of my travel, leaving last two years because I have not traveled in the last two years uh, anywhere, uh, but Prior to 2020, I saw that you go to any major airport around the world, you would see a rupee conversion rate. Like you could see Japanese or dollar or euro, or earlier you could see franc and Deutsche Marks and others, now euro and some of the other currencies, or even New Zealand currency or Australian currency. Indian currency is also available as an exchange factor. So you can actually go and exchange Indian rupee on an exchange sitting in any part of the world with major airports accepting it. In Asia, I saw it in most countries. Vietnam does it, Hong Kong does it, uh, China does it, various countries. Japan does it, I've seen it at these airports. Germany, I've seen it happens and does it. So various airports, we have been seeing this happening. And I've seen that happen in the last, I would say, 2013-14 onwards. So there is an acceptability for a rupee as a currency. And when these countries do this, they have to keep that as a reserve because they do not know how much demand may come up tomorrow for people to go about buying some of these currencies. Then the collaborations which we have had in the last two to three years in particular, you know, after the COVID came in, has actually been a blessing for India. Not only has the political uh, acceptability or the diplomatic acceptability enhanced in the last uh, three years in particular, post-COVID, for both Modi and India, but also the fact that bilateral agreements, free trade agreements have increased uh, to almost about double the level as it used to be, whether it is with United States or European countries or Asian countries, every across the board. And that has also boosted the fact that the interest of wanting to do business with India and accepting the the currency in rupee would go forward. So in that perspective, when that happens, and this decision of RBI will actually help uh, stabilize the rupee and remove this, this currency fluctuation problem, because as of today, most people would traded in dollar or euro or some other major currency like pound or or yen, but now then they will convert. And so we had the conversion version in India. Now that conversion burden goes to a foreign country because now we're looking at everything to come in rupee. A recent example is of the ruble, where Russia had been forced to only do everything in ruble, and we saw the appreciation of ruble. India will not see that kind of an appreciation of a rupee because in ruble, it was a natural resource which they were exporting. And it it is a important commodity which is inelastic in nature, like oil, like Sri Lanka today is ready to buy the Russian oil because they have no little money to go about buying. So whatever rate they give them, even if they give a discount, they're ready to buy it. If they have to give in rubles, they will arrange those rubles and give it to them. And since the ruble supply was limited, and so the ruble prices started rising up because everything now Russia was asking was in rubles, whether it was medicine supply or it was goods supply or it was oil supply, so naturally rising. In India, we don't have that scenario. We have no commodity, which is a inelastic uh, you know, export for that. That means countries across the globe are inelastically looking at purchasing that commodity from us. The only commodity which has emerged in the last two years in particular for India is vaccines. Oh, yeah. So fortunately, we have been able to develop 
couple of vaccines which are fairly well acceptable and large countries across the globe uh, including united states africa and others have actually accepted that vaccine are, and are endorsing that vaccination and specifically because we also give hydrochlorine to united states so there is a natural inclination to accept some of these things since we have that particular commodity which we have a huge chunk of base to create and supply that is one commodity which can demand and help create that demand but leaving that we have no commodity whether you're looking at rice or cloth or textiles or or chemicals or chips there are countries which provide it uh, even china asia various countries eastern european countries provide some of these product some of commodities so we don't have an edge in terms of dictating our terms but we have an edge in terms of building those relationships up why because even these countries let us say we are doing business with hungary or we are doing business with uh, france or we are doing business with uh, let us say vietnam now for them to go about buying dollar is also expensive so for them to also move to indian rupee would be a beneficial deal because the volatility between vietnam uh, currency or hungarian uh, you know but no hungary hungary is with euro now but no hungary is still with their own currency so hungarian currency and indian rupee or you're looking at turkish lira with indian currency will be low that volatility is not that high because of then then there is no much appreciation between these currencies or depreciation whereas when it comes to dollar or euro where the volatility is fairly high euro has not seen that kind of volatility in the last almost 15 years initially when euro launched they had lot of volatility for the first two years but after that it has been stable so now the volatility is very high so for them to take these products and services from a country like india in our dollar base or euro base is very expensive and very difficult and that's why their also interest in wanting to move to indian irr would be much higher and given the fact that we have now rupiah so we give them we can give them credit directly credit line and we have had that with iran because i remember when iran way back uh, when george w bush junior was there as the president he, there were large number of sanctions imposed on iran and iraq also so and we used to import large chunk of our oil from iran and iraq and as a result we had to make payments so we had a lot of problem because the us sanctions were there so we could not make those payments in dollars or iraqi currency or iranian currency so then we resorted to rupee payments which were there and they accepted those credit lines to be given because they needed food supplies they needed textiles they needed uh, you know medicines coming from india so they could use that credit line to buy some of these commodities from india itself and then import those commodities instead of taking a full currency so as a result they created those indian reserve currencies in their own country and take that as a credit line so that credit line facility will enhance with the rupiah based framework and other digital frameworks which india has launched and i think this will help the rupee based trade go forward and strengthen the rupee but not to the level we have seen with ruble or not to the level the way us is seeing and as i said fortunately india as of today is seeing the growth path even today the government is talking about investment the foreign direct investment is increasing we are receiving about 7 and a half billion dollars every month from overseas last year you can imagine during covid time also we received about 6.75 billion dollars per month uh, even to in 2020 you know this earlier to that was 6 billion dollars so the number increased despite that the country is not doing well the economic situation was not well but we still kept receiving foreign direct investment out of which roughly about you know one third is reinvestment of funds by operators here and rest comes as fresh fund so when this foreign direct investment is there portfolio investment is there 
a lot of other investments are taking place and indian government is also investing in terms of building new projects now we have for last 2 3 years we are selling our defense equipment so we are getting connection reserves from there as well so some of these activities automobiles is now for the last 10 years from india is being sold to africa eastern europe asia and other countries some of these activities have taken a momentum in the last couple of years this will also help you know boost up the currency and the reserves in this country and and that's why we are still on that investment path whereas most other countries today or the government and the central bank are focusing on oh, how do i control inflation how do i control unemployment so the question which is worrying these minds of the the intelligentsia in some of these places both the political leaders and the uh, central bankers is how do i control not how do i make things grow fortunately for india we know the scenario and that's where difference a little difference between the inflation scenario in india and the inflation scenario in the large part of the world specifically the developed world is taking place and this is something which changes the the framework so but india is not wanting to do or become a superpower or a super leader or have a super currency like a dollar we are not here competing with the dollar we only trying to stabilize ourselves and that is something which should be understood by the world at large we are not doing this to take a h higher echelon like we have seen with ussr the prestorica before prestorica the way ussr and russia and us used to be having dominance position or like russia is now again trying to get its dominance position back again you know that is not something which india is looking at at all but certainly india has its own advantages and disadvantages and we are trying to live with them and move forward fortunately it has been good times for us now no of course because we every country has to think about establishing sustainable systems right so the steps that reserve bank of india and india you know broadly took uh, for the rupee i think they they are commendable and it will stabilize uh, the currency and in the long term it will actually strengthen the currency so uh, those are all very good decisions and very good you know framework uh, uh, that has been put in place now Uh, if we talk about the food crisis that it is emerging rapidly if we won't feel it in next 2 3 months but the next year 2023 is going to hit very hard what implications do you see for emerging economies and especially for india you know again a very critical question i think food crisis has been a cause of concern as raised by fao for almost last 20 years mm-hmm. uh, when we look at india in particular uh, this is not a matter of major concern we do import some food commodities as well uh, but a large amount of our food supplies comes domestically and uh, we have the capability you know despite that uh, you might have read and heard in the international media uh, for almost a year the farmers had gone on strike in india because of the farm law which is created uh, by this government in terms of trying to bring in market mechanisms it and benefit the farmers to go about selling their products instead of specific uh, mandis as we call them or or wholesale markets places uh, to directly to any place in the world which they wanted to do but then there were certain lobbies who did not appreciate that idea and as a result we had farmers on strike and after which the government had to repeal those laws off so they were strike but despite that we had a 1% rise in the the contribution of agriculture to the gdp growth uh, last year so there was an increase in the farm production despite this one year of complete restraint of large number of agricultures coming into play and doing their role given that things are back on normal 
and there were no supply chain disruptions in agriculture producers despite covid being there because you see an agriculturist works on land which is large chunk and so they are spread there is no question of meeting each other and as a result covid spread was limited so the government did not put any restrictions or lockdowns on agriculture producers so the supplies kept going on the production kept going on so there were no restriction no structures and india unlike any other country still has roughly about 65% of its population engaged in pure agriculture yes still 10% which is actually uh, you know in agro based industries so we can see clearly how the agriculture is still a key area in terms of providing livelihoods to people in this country and which was not under lockdown or not under restriction despite covid 19 2021 and that continued in a normal course which happened and has been fortunately giving that boost to the economy the vac that most industries uh, educational institutions people uh, could survive comfortably was on the back of the agriculturist producing some of these goods and services and supplying them to big cities like delhi and others and this is something which is fairly unique because most developed countries like united states or even developed countries in europe have roughly about 2.5% to 5% of their total population engaged in agriculture and that is why the wto fell off because these countries were actually subsidizing agriculture to keep this agriculture component alive otherwise people will have moved from this agriculture also to other businesses and there will be no agriculture which is being done in these countries to so almost 200 300% which led to the wto fall off but this is something which has kept india running which has not kept some of the other countries running and given the ukraine russia crisis large part of eastern europe has been a buffer supplier of food grains to europe and even to america and other countries in america unfortunately latin america could not become that framework which could supply to united states because latin america looking at united states and canada upgraded itself and also reduced its agriculture based population to a very low level and moved to other productive services and specifically services sector as like we saw in the united states and canada uh, and that's where they have never been able to become a back end support for agriculture produce although brazil does have a large chunk of farming but even then you know mexico also has but they are very small and brazil is not able to cope up and supply the kind of requirements which are there which is the united states of canada and other parts of the world so even today large part of asia and eastern europe is a food grain buffer eastern europe is completely devastated because of the ukraine russia war not because they cannot supply but because of the fact that the ukrainians who have moved out of ukraine and have got settled in the neighboring countries are requiring these food supplies when you're looking at even food supplies being given by international agencies like united nations and other countries being supplied to ukraine during the time of war these food supplies are coming from neighboring countries then directly from united states or so even if united states is providing these food supplies it is coming from neighboring countries they pick it up and supply it to them then supplying directly from united states to to ukraine this is where the food scarcity and the food crisis specifically for europe for us and your and you know even eastern europe is becoming a cause of concern asia as a matter of fact 
is isolated from this war scenario because it has been providing and has kept its agriculture you know uh, china has reduced but even china still has roughly about 18 20% people uh, vietnam has roughly about 60 65 60% population in agriculture so most smaller countries in asia still have a large chunk uh, you know because of japan want of rice they have created these rice farms not in japan but in neighboring countries like taiwan and others uh, across in asia to pr provide rice to them for their own consumption so as a result their again production capacities have been sustained there so we do not see the food crisis creating a havoc in asia region per se or even the arabic region which has been importing because arabic region typically does not manufacture anything per se very small quantity so they have been importing from the very beginning and they are welcoming import from any part of the world which they can do so they have already sustained supplies from asia which is not disrupted so the problem is for europe and yeah. for the america but but the fuel and the fertilizer crisis that could have implications for the food growth right for the agriculture industry because the fertilizer mostly comes from russia and with the russia stopping the supply of fertilizer many asian countries would have severe implications do you see that playing a role you see uh, fertilizer supplies would certainly disrupt uh, across the globe with the russia supplies but as i said i have no uh, exact data on how much which country actually imports in terms of fertilizer from russia uh, russia also is fairly opaque like china because everything is in russian and you know the information which comes out to the public domain is very limited mm -hmm. why people are not hearing what is happening in russia is because the media is fairly controlled in in russia and there is no international media per se present right. there to actually right. give you the real facts we see this problem in russia in china even to a great extent in japan you know so in japan when i have been there a couple of times uh, japan bbc is only which is scrutinized and relevant for japan uh, you know cnn has a separate channel for japan which is only relevant for japan it is not cnn international which goes in japan so there is restrictions of information flow which is there in some of these countries which are domestically and locally on their own languages dependent and as a result it is difficult to come out as to what exact figures are there but when it comes to fertilizers most countries in the last 15 20 years have actually moved on after the wto fall off have moved on to first organic agriculture secondly tying up with countries for organic agriculture like i can take the case study of india when you look at india india could not move to fertilizer because it's so expensive we could not mechanize because buying tractors and other flowing uh, devices was so expensive there is no financing facility for a farmer so the farmer had no option but to stick back to traditional means traditional. of farming which had become which has become a boon today right. which was a curse in the right. 80s and the 90s because the productivity could not be enhanced green agriculture that is using these uh, closed domains and structures providing sufficient water you know canals and stuff could not be developed and not only the government could not provide the financing was not there the agriculturists could not do it as a result they still depend on small water dug out from the land uh, with limited of supply of electricity which is given to them maybe free but very limited supply of electricity right. so they use traditional ways of cows flowing a pump to pull out water how much water can they pull out it's not cannot be mechanized mm -hmm. you know what you can do with mechanical structures is go 10 times they could not so they have stuck to organic and what has happened is for last 15 years or maybe 20 years i would say countries like france germany israel italy have signed up and taken up large chunk of farmlands in india 
as a collaboration in Haryana, in Punjab, in Kerala, in, in other Tamil Nadu, in other parts of this country, even the Northeast zone, because some products are only produced in Northeast zone. And there they're doing organic agriculture and producing these goods and exporting. Mm. So a farmer benefits in the sense that he's able to produce and sell goods. These people benefit that they're able to get organic food because organic food pricing is usually three times to five times in their own domestic markets. Yes. And because of the concern, health concerns, which have risen between Europe and in United States for organic-based foods, people have a tendency, those who can afford, to move to organic foods. And that's why the need and demand for organic foods have gone up. And as a result, some of these countries, like in, in Sri Lanka also, as I was saying, organic food movement was there, but very sudden. The government, because of China's influence, immediately, immediately took a decision that no fertilizer base. In India, it is not a decision. So people are moving to organic because there are companies and countries coming to take it and take that product form. Right. People are tending to organic because they did not have, could not go into fertilizer and mechanized farming. Mm -hmm. so that was the reason. So we still have fertilizer-based mechanized farming plus the traditional one. In Sri Lanka, they were forced to move and that force could not help the productivity attain and as a result, they had an economic dip. Yes. In large part of the other world, they are, some of these countries are tying up, but rest of them are completely left high and dry because these, they buy products from the open market, specifically the Arabic region, because of their oil prices and their oil reserve, they thought we have constant supply of money as black gold. And so we'll be able to sell this black gold and buy anything we want, whether it is human resource, education, uh, food, banking, whatever we want, we'll buy and keep it in our country. And that's what they have been doing. But what unfortunately happened about 10 years back when the prices of oil rose, tremendously high to about $120, $130 a barrel. Some of these oil countries like the UAE actually calibrated that if suppose the price remains at $100, so I will have like in the US they do, lived on future incomes. You know, in most in US, even individuals live on future incomes. So they calibrated, if it is $100, I have so much of reserve. So they took loans from international banks, financial institutions, to the tune of 10 years of their production of oil and sale at a $100, $110 projection. And as a result, trying to create big buildings like Burj Arab and real estate facilities, which did not yield them proper results. And as a result, they are in a debt trap also. So they do not have the liquidity. Their black gold is already locked on with a huge amount, which is hyperinflated and which falls down to like $19 and so on and so forth. Even now, since it is falling to, it's come down to $95, $96 a barrel. It is estimated that another month or so, it is expected to fall down to about $40, $45, $50 a barrel uh, with the United States pumping in and throwing oil into the open market to get revenue out for their own consumption and some of the other countries like Russia doing it as well. So given that their own projections fall, and this has created a big financial problem for them Yes. Also, not in terms of movement or growth, but in terms of food security in specific. Yes. So the food security is certainly as a cause of concern. But in my opinion, if countries are able to tie up with countries like India, where agriculture is still at a very high pace, and it is not so difficult because you see when dollar is so strong and you have to give out peanuts in terms of buying some of these agriculture products mm -hmm. today, you will be able to balance out and take 
care of the food security problem, right. keeping in mind that Europe, as of today, even if the war ends today, cannot supply you food grains for the next six months. Yes. So they would be scanty because they would need those food grains to be supplied within Europe first and then outside. So to countries like Canada, America, Latin America, or even some of the Eastern Asian countries like Japan, which if they have had been depending on Eastern Europe for food supplies, will have to reorient their structures and look at some of these models which Italy, France, Germany, and Israel has done with India and do replicate them with not only India, but other countries as well. Like Vietnam could be one, Cambodia could be another, which have huge chunk of people engaged in agriculture to about go about inducing those agriculture and taking care of the food security. That is something which can be done comfortably and diversify that risk, which is emerging at a very strong pace. The food agriculture organization, the FAO, has been raising this concern for the last 20 years. They have yes. reports going down back to 20 years. But yes. unfortunately, country and political leaders have been ignoring this right. year after year. Right. You know, looking at climate change and other things. I'm surprised that, that this young girl from Norway who has created this havoc in climate and even was invited by United Nations to address is nowhere talking about the kind of devastation which is happening because of one bomb which is falling on Ukraine or Ukrainian bomb falling on Russia. Imagine we are told to segregate our waste which is done in the United States aggressively in India to segregate waste, decompose, reuse and so on and so forth. That pollution is very small as compared to the pollution which this war of Russia and Ukraine is coming. I fail to understand why young motivators, social activists like her who have millions of followers are not coming forward to voice to stop this war and save the face of humanity. Because yeah. war do have people who become rich, countries who become rich on account of war. We have seen that in the past. So there are economic outlays which happen because of war. So it is an economic benefit which comes, but the biggest disbenefit is humanity. The biggest sufferers are humanity. And right. that cost never be recovered. And that is something which is a big cost as against the economic benefits, some countries, including Ukraine and Russia, which will benefit out of these, or those who are allying with Ukraine and Russia to facilitate this war will actually benefit out of this in economic terms, both in terms of selling the warheads and also in terms of developing and reconstructing. I remember after the World War I and World War II, Europe had to be constructed. And this task was given to United States to do. So United States GDP per capita and per capita income grew multifold within a span of 10 to 15 years on account of Europe wanting to rebuild itself after war. So there is a rebuilding which is there. So there's economic benefit. Similarly, if you saw in Indonesia recently when tsunami happened, till tsunami happened, Indonesia's economy was going down, was in recession, was in a downfall. But a natural calamity like tsunami destroyed large part of Indonesia. And hence, they had to rebuild the whole structure, buildings, hospitals, facilities, schools, colleges, manufacturing units. And so they had to call upon parties from all around the world to help them do that. And as a result, the government had to spend, uh, the parliament allowed it to spend. And as a result, they were able to boost their economy. And then they have seen growth come in in due course. So growth gets born out of this war which comes up, but that growth is not good. That economic benefits are not good on account of humanity which is lost. So on a humanitarian ground, on human life loss, building castles and buildings and, and uh, riches is not something which countries should look at 
by promoting or motivating wars. And I think people like that girl should come up forward who are motivators to stop this war. Instead of taking sides between Russia and Ukraine, they should come up and talk about stopping this war, uh, creating a momentum uh, where both these countries are told to stop this war immediately for people's benefit, for humanity's benefit, and not for some kind of a gain. Absolutely. You are absolutely correct because understanding the emerging economic crisis is an opportunity to question the ongoing hybrid warfare worldwide as we are witnessing and whether the geopolitics of emerging technologies will bring down our civilization. So uh, your insights were right on and I hope that all the decision makers all across, you know, uh, countries and uh, not just, you know, uh, the governments, but the economists and bankers, everybody listens to, you know, what you had to say today. And I'm sure that that is going to help uh, everyone uh, give some clarity in how they should move forward. So thank you so much, Professor Agarwal, for participating in this roundup today. Namaste. We appreciate your thoughtful insight into the emerging economic crisis and our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from what you had to say today. And as a result, this risk round of dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that. Risk Group is a strategy... Thank you so much. Risk Group is a strategic security risk research platform and community. Risk Group and I are on a mission to talk with a billion brilliant minds through the Risk Roundup initiative. The reason behind this effort is to research, review, rate, and report strategic security risk facing humanity. Thank you for being part of the conversation. Until next time, I'm Jayshree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you. Namaste. Thank you.